Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year with Policy Genius. You can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. You want to talk about uh, bug bitten. I'm referring, of course, when I say you want to talk about, I'm referring to our brand. You know, we haven't addressed the brand Spickety New intro. Anyone curious about that music in the brand Spickety New intro? That's by a band. You're going to see some good hosting right now because I'm going to, I'm going to build, I'm going to make this work a minute. That that's that that piece of music within that intro and the trees falling down and you hear tree falling and and there's a intro song. That's a band called Shearwater. That's that song is from an album Jet Plane and Oxbow. I'm friends with that musician. He's very undecided about hunting. I've taken him fishing and um he enjoyed being out there, but he said I just don't view fish and things the way you do but he's a he's a wonderful musician and the reason I'm, here, here's where the good hosting comes in because for a long time that musician was based out of austin and we're in texas right now see how seamless that was we're in maverick county which is is it fair to say that this is like this is ground zero this is like the base this is the heart and soul of like the whole Texas whitetail big buck world. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. For giant, for giant whitetails. 
That was the voice of El Ocho, Ben Binion. <laughs> Benion? Binion. So it's the same sound as your first name. Yeah, it sounds like you stutter a little bit. Ben Benion. Yeah. That was the voice of Ben Benion. We're going to get to him in a minute. Also, here's uh, Chris Gill. Chris? Um, Chris already warned us he doesn't have much to say. He's just sitting in and listening. Um, and Giannis Fritellis. At this point in the show, I'd normally plug Giannis's t-shirt company, but I'm not anymore because he won't make me my perch flies. Oh. I had asked Giannis. You're going to get him one way or another. <laughs> I, asked, I asked Giannis probably about 18 months, I'm guessing. 18 months ago. I think it was SHOT Show 2015. To make me a couple perch flies. I'm talking about flies used for yellow perch. Um, you take a little bit of, you take a hook, take a little bit of bucktail, you take a little bit of thread. I'd make it myself, but I gave my damn, what's the, the, the bobbin? Bobbin? Yeah. I gave my bobbin to a buddy of mine, and, and because uh, I used to tie a couple flies now, and then I just got enough things I like to do, and that got low on the list of things I like to do, and I just gave it all away. And then asked Yanni to make me some, and he won't make them for me. Can you explain to people why you won't make them over 18 months? <laughs> There's no real reason other than that it, all my <laughs> shits, my fly time shits packed away. <laughs> it must be pretty packed away. <laughs> like when you ask me to reload some ammo, usually get to that pretty quickly because that bench is operational right now. But the, tie, the tie-in bench is not no, operational. Oh man, it's under a half an inch of dust, and that dust is heavy. Really? <laughs> Also, Yanni's in the process of buying himself a new home. Yeah, maybe I'll set up a bench when I get there. So, Ben, ex- I-, I can't even begin. There's so many things I want to ask you about or have you talk about that you've already told me about that I can't even think of where to start. Give me a little, give me the Ben, the Ben Benyon bio. Uh, well, uh, I started- let, me, let me interrupt. Okay. I- I'm not doing a good job. Ben is, what, what, are, what do you call what you do? Land, a land manager? I uh, I consider myself a wildlife biologist. All right. Ben's a wildlife biologist. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Ben's a wildlife biologist working in the private sector, and you run the wildlife program on a large ranch, large property in South Texas. Correct. Okay. Now I'll get into the whole where you came from, what what kind of education mm-hmm. you sought out. And what your uh, what your dictate is your uh, you know your mandate not dictate that reminds me of an old joke what your <laughs> mandate is yeah uh, well I started out kind of whenever I was when I was younger my uh, well my parents split up and my uh, my stepdad my mom remarried and my stepdad ran a uh, took care of a piece of property not too far from here in, in Maverick uh, County no it was it was but it was right on the border of Maverick County it was so right some in, of the big bucks strayed over into that county pretty much yeah it was one of the it was it was top top five counties for big bucks and uh he took care of that place for uh I guess my pretty much my from about 10 years old on and uh and I saw what was going on there and I wanted to do it and uh I was trying to figure out how to go about it and uh so, so basically what I did is, is, uh, after high school, I went to college to, uh, pursue a degree in range and wildlife science at, uh, Texas A&M Kingsville, which, uh, at the time was the number one 
uh, college in the nation for wildlife program. And uh, and is I is it believe, the Aggies? No, it's uh, not Aggies. It, it's part of that system. Yeah, but uh, like Texas A and M College Station, which is the which you see the Aggies on TV. Yep. Uh, this is a uh, what do you call it? A uh, like a branch of that satellite campus. Satellite campus. Yeah, we had our own football team and our own mascot, and uh, but and we were way or we were much higher on the on the as far as ranked in a wildlife program than the main campus because gotcha. of the uh, is mainly because of the uh, experience experience level that you could get while in class um and, you know, on, on first-hand experience first-hand and every, every day we were every class every every uh junior senior level class you know plant uh plant id and those kind of classes were in the field and uh our exams were in the field our exams were verbal uh i mean walking through walking through brush cactus everything that we've been walking through uh this week but uh so i i went there and uh, while I was working on the ranch that my stepdad uh, took care of, and I was kind of, I guess you could say, just a, more of a ranch hand than anything, just did odds and ends, fixing fences and everything. But I developed a passion for, for deer. Uh, I always loved to hunt, and uh, but I really, really wanted to figure out, you know, what made deer big and why were they big in this area in South and Kind of, we're southwest Texas, I guess you can say. And uh, so I started kind of paying attention to everything while I was in college and getting the degree. And were they and, teaching you about white-tailed deer in college? Yeah, or yes and no. It was more, uh, they, were, they were giving us the tools to, to learn, and they, they, didn't, they didn't focus on any one species. They yeah. didn't focus on quail or whitetails. They kind of, they did a little, you know, they, they touched on it. But... Uh, Everything that they taught us, you can apply to any species. Yep, I'm with you. And then, uh, and so what I did is I just I took all that, all the everything I learned, and applied it to whitetails while we were going through the courses through college. And uh, so, whenever I graduated, I, I graduated in uh, 2008. I graduated high school in 04, college 2008 in spring, and uh, my it it actually. The owner of the property uh, offered me a job, and uh, which was kind of the place you grew up on. The place I grew up on, which is kind of the the end all plan, was my stepdad was going to retire and I was going to take over his his position. Well, I graduated in May, and in April of two thousand and eight, my stepdad had a accident, and he uh, he fell out of a deer stand. He fell fourteen feet to the ground on a uh, rocky hill. Uh, so it was a hard, hard hill, and he he uh, broke both of his wrists, compound fractures, broke almost all of his ribs, uh, lacerated a kidney, lungs filled up with fluid, created an induced trauma heart attack. They airlifted him to San Antonio. He was in ICU for thirty days. This this happened on April fourteenth. I graduated May tenth, so I didn't walk the stage on graduation because I didn't have any family that would be there to watch me because they were all at the hospital with him in, in the ICU. So, uh, so what I was doing while I was that last month in college is I was coming back to the ranch because I knew every, we had seven employees. So I kept the ranch running while he was in the hospital. And, so, and just to back up here, the ranch, this is a cattle operation. Cattle, it was a, it's a cattle operation with a side note of hunting. 
Yeah. Um, in the, the so a heavy fam- emphasis on wildlife. Right. A heavy emphasis on wildlife. The family in the the family was the main people that hunted it. We did. We it was not a commercial operation. It wasn't fenced. It was. Uh, it was just a fun place for the family and friends and guests and uh, and some business associates of the owner. And uh, so basically, what I was uh, kind of thrown head first when my stepdad was in the hospital. I was I graduated and took the job. And took over his position. So I, I was never, I never, I never was, I was started from the ground level whenever I was in college. As soon as I graduated, I started, I went straight to the top yeah. because I was forced into it more yeah. than anything. And, uh, and I changed a few things on the wildlife side and we were, we were that ranch that or that property was, was under pretty intense management for, I don't know, 15 years, maybe 18 years before before i took over and we had we had really nice whitetails and and the whitetails were you know there were there was big big antler deer everywhere and uh but i i never really intended to make them bigger i was just trying to kind of fill in and uh that was about the time that trail cameras started getting real popular as far as infrared and uh you know start started getting uh uh I guess user friendly and and cheap enough, mm-hmm. and uh, so I started running trail cameras, and we started we started noticing what deer would do from uh, from year to year as far as antler development, um, you know, movement, uh, rutting habits, uh, you know, forage habits, uh, bedding bedding areas, everything, everything you could you could figure out with the trail cams, and uh, so I started. Do you feel with, that that really? Uh, do you feel that, that really rewrote? people's understandings i think i think the trail camera is the you know probably the best thing that's happened to hunting and to managing wildlife in my opinion uh in in my lifetime you know a biologist in new york just put out a book about the significance of what they call a camera trap yeah to the field he published sort of what he thinks of as i think the 300 or 600 like very influential trail cam images or camera trap images and talked about the the implications that tool had for understanding distribution and range of wildlife travel patterns of wildlife um i I want you to continue that but I i was at this thing a few years ago in north carolina and it was a deer like a wildlife expo a guy there was telling me this story about someone. Have we talked about this on the podcast? The Kentucky, Tennessee bucks. Did I ever tell you about this? You've told me about it. I don't know if we've mentioned it on the podcast. All right. So Kentucky and Tennessee have different season structures, hunting season structures. And they obviously share a pretty long border. So a guy comes forth with some big buck. That he claims to have shot one or the other. Let's just for argue for for discussion's sake. Let's say he comes forth with this big bucks as well. I shot it in Kentucky. Okay, mm, it was probably vice versa because I think uh, Tennessee has the liberal okay. allotments. So comes forward and says, "I shot this big giant buck in Tennessee." Winds up being like some state record for the year buck. He gets a bunch of publicity. The buck tours around at a couple of these shows. I'm talking about these these wildlife expos. Eventually, a guy. From Kentucky, sees the big famous Tennessee buck and says, 
I know that buck. I'll show you a trail cam picture of that buck hundreds of miles away <laughs> from where this man claims that he shot it. And the buck had such a distinctive rack. They successfully prosecuted the man and seized the head. Yeah. Because of this, because of this guy's trail cam pictures of where that buck was on what day it was there. <laughs> and he had just shot it out of season and to make it legal, came back across the border. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's a trail cam story for you. Yeah. Yeah. They use it, uh, the wardens. <laughs> the warden. Yeah. That one, Chris. You like that one, don't <laughs> you? Chris is still nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the wardens here use them. Similar deal where they right? like if an, if a if a, uh, a deer of interest comes about and uh, shot by a hunter and uh, it's poached, you know the landowner can knows it's missing and it shows up somewhere. He sees a picture of it somewhere and he says that you know that deer came off of my property and he's surrounded by several other private properties. Yeah, like so, he didn't travel hundred miles that day or whatever. Right, yeah. right, and they they prosecuted several people now. Uh, on this exact same situation. It's probably, it wasn't, you know, not nothing that high profile, but, but it's the same deal. Yeah. But so yeah, yeah. So this guy's got a book coming out about just how much that changed our understanding of, you know, all, all different kinds of wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. I saw some, I saw some trail cam images that came out of Afghanistan one time where they, it was some really rare sheep. You can see it going through a pass. Mm-hmm. And the next images are a couple dudes with, uh, with the, you know, the Afghanistan, they were all so familiar with now, the hats, they, you know, from the Afghan war, you see people wearing in long robes and a couple of Kalashnikovs going through the pass right behind it, <laughs> going chase it after. Yeah. So anyhow, there you are. All of a sudden you're managing that place and you start using trail cams. Yeah, we started using trail cams and I started noticing, uh, noticing, uh, changes, changes in antler development that from year to year that, uh, were bizarre to me. Because these these jumps or these uh, increases in uh, in antler size on deer that we thought we we would recognize from year to year, from season to season, because their home ranges. Uh, and tell me if I'm getting off point at no, no, no. point, but uh, the home ranges are you know on our mature bucks are about four to eight thousand acres, and uh, so you always on a piece of property you have. Your, what do you guys figure? Put that into square mile be like 10 to 12 i think 10 to 12 square miles okay that 640 is a square mile so, uh so you know a buck's home range is 10 to tw- 10 to 12 square miles and of course you have tons of overlap and uh our our uh density was about a, a deer per uh 25 acres a, a deer so and we had a one-to-one buck doe ratio so we had a buck per 50 acres okay uh so square miles that would be uh what, 10 bucks per square mile? So but, a total of maybe, maybe 20, 20 deer per square mile. Yeah, 15, 15 bucks per square mile maybe. Um, you know, all different age classes. But anyway, what I started noticing is these bucks that we thought we knew. Well, it, let me let me back up. We were shooting. We were harvesting. The family was harvesting trophy bucks every year that were exceptional. But sometimes we did not know what that deer had been. He just showed up. And... uh so and we we'd harvest them and we'd look at their teeth based off of the all the studies that have been done on age by tooth wear and replacement, which you know some people say it's it's you know it's the only thing we have to go off of uh is we have is by the teeth it's not very accurate, but it's the only thing we have yeah uh but that 
the teeth would be sharp. So they in indicating that they were a young young buck. So what I started doing is I started documenting these deer with the trail cameras, and uh, to uh, find out why you know we're shooting these deer that looked old, but they had sharp teeth, and we'd never seen them before. Because let me just fill in a little bit. What you're suggesting is you guys felt that you could look at a deer's antlers and then immediately recognize him again the next year because he'd just be a little bit bur- bigger version. Right. But then all of a sudden, here's this deer who, like, where'd he come from? Because I didn't see a slightly smaller version of him last year. That's exactly correct. Okay. That's exactly correct. So uh, what, I, what I was, uh, I started documenting deer based off of their locations and their home ranges and, and would save pictures from year to year to see, uh, see which ones look similar. And I started noticing that there was there was bucks making huge huge jumps, and uh, I mean they would go from 120 inch deer to 160 or 170 inch deer in one one growing season, and usually that was a, a you know what we were guessing to be a three or four year old deer to a four or five year old deer that that age group was usually the big jumps. So we started doing is documenting those deer as far as based off of trail cams. And uh, I started doing that, and we started letting deer go. No matter how big they were, they'd be 170-inch deer that we would typically shoot. We said, well, we'll, uh, we'll let him go and see what happens. And because of his age. Because of his age. We wanted to see, we were trying to figure out how, when was the peak. You know, that's what everybody in the whitetail industry tries to figure out is uh, what's the... Uh, What's the, what's the peak age? When do they peak out? And uh, and we think in Texas down here we think it's uh, we think it's a little older than everywhere else, but we're different. And uh, whitetails are really site specific animals. I mean it it changes twenty miles changes completely as far as deer to deer. Uh, so anyway, what? Uh, but um, what is the age? Um, well, what we found, or what what my personal research and what uh, other research uh, institutes are, are finding, it depends on the ranch. It depends on the property. It depends on the location. It depends on the deer. They're all individual. But in my opinion, our deer in Maverick County and that county was uh, were were maximizing their antler potential at seven and eight years old, not five and six like previously thought. Uh, in those, in all of that was just an estimation before at five and six. And some of those deer, people were estimating them, and they're actually younger. Uh, so with the trail cams, we can get a better idea of their age based off of, uh, he's not in, you know, if, okay, if we have three years of pictures, and he wasn't two years old in the first picture, he's at least five or six. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of what we went off of. And we started letting these deer grow to be seven and eight years old and nine years old before we harvest them. And we can see these deer. We're, we're feeding, and they're coming out every day, and they're not, uh, not every day, but I'm seeing them in the trail cams every day. And they're, they're really, they're still hard to hunt. They're nocturnal, um, even though we're, we're feeding. And uh, so I just started, we started uh, letting these deer grow to, to a lot older age class than anybody else was, and we started noticing that, hey, we just stepped up our game. You know, we went from killing a a couple of 160 class deer and a 170 here and there to killing 180s every year with an occasional 200 in a three or four year period. 
And then it no year six we were killing multiple one nineties with a with a two hundred almost every year, and uh, and this was solely due from knowing the individual deer through trail camera. Yeah, and uh, and the the you can't you can't always tell antlers year to year, but what we were doing is is we knew where the deer was, his home range. He did the same thing each year, you know. In October he'd be here. In November he'd be here. Then the next year, a deer that looked similar to him but bigger would do the same thing. So we assumed yeah. it was the same deer. We weren't always right. Or I, I say we. It was me more than anything. Uh, I wasn't always right on that, but most part we were. And we stepped up our game big time as far as uh, growing growing big deer. And uh, so I guess about year seven, uh, these, these current landowners that were on this property we're at now in Maverick County, approached me through a mutual friend and uh asked i i i guess i met them at year six and they approached me to try to find a uh a they just purchased this this property and they they approached me to find a uh a ranch foreman and wildlife biologist to run this property for them and they wanted nothing else other than to grow giant whitetails that's all they wanted to do or let them grow no cattle no cattle and uh so I, and they offer, they asked me, they said, would you be willing to leave your current position? I said, no, I grew up here and I'm happy and I don't want to do it. Well, that went on and I looked for a couple people for them, but I could never find anybody that I thought I could recommend and put my name on. But a year later, they made me an offer to come over here that I couldn't turn down. So, uh, so I came and, uh, started applying the same basic knowledge that i was doing there with the trail cameras and the the inventory of the of the deer here and uh and it's a it's a five to six year deal before you can really start seeing consistent results on uh growing growing these big whitetail but your job like you're a a salaried individual yep and your job is to take a sizable chunk of land here yep and Incre- the the end goal that you're pursuing is to increase the number and size of big giant whitetail bucks. Exactly. Yep. Before on the old property, I had uh, I was doing that almost as a side note because we had cattle and in a little bit of, of uh, agriculture crop, and uh, and the hunting was a side note. Yeah. And now. You know, and that's the part that I enjoyed the most. That's the part that I developed a passion for. Now you're just strictly wildlife. Just strictly wildlife, and uh, and we do we don't do. I mean, that's 100 percent of what we're what we're after is improving the wildlife. All right, let me ask some base, real basic stuff. What are and Yanni, jump in whenever you need to. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping, which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because what store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. 
ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater and use code meat eater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. This place is not a fence place. Correct. Are there fence places here? Like, why are some places in Texas? We always hear about, like, the fence properties. What do you gain and lose? Like, why did why did you not... Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. Why did you not come in and be like, first thing we're going to do, boys, is build a big damn fence? Yeah, because that's... Uh, the fences in Texas are... are man, it's a, it's a touchy subject. Uh, they can be... Yeah, but just talk... You don't even need to weigh in. Just tell me, yeah. like, the thinking, right? Okay. Well, uh, the main the main thinking in uh, the reason fences were were originally, you know, set up for deer in Texas 
And what year you told us earlier? And what year did you say they became popular? Uh, I think the first one, first official one, was in the late '60s. Was when the first one that was made with railroad ties and some sheep and goat net fence. And what kind of acreage? Uh, that one. That one was eight thousand acres. Oh, and uh, so big. We're they, not talking about like four hundred acre. No, they started out as large properties, and what they started out as is to keep their neighbors from killing their deer. Or for harvesting their deer prematurely. Because they're like, we're running a management program, practicing some restraint, and then inevitably the big bucks that we're producing by providing good habitat and all that are getting shot by some hoser on the next property. Right. It's done what so, he's done his whole life, and it, there's nothing wrong with it. He's just hunting. Um, but he's not as intense. That's the way the fences started out. And that was a great, great tool. But it's, That was uh, the motivation. That was the motivation. Yeah. So what what happened was is in my opinion is uh, is people just got greedy, and they started, you know, fencing smaller properties and and figuring out that they could have a, a quick fix. It's just like you know that's just people; they want to get it fast. What do you mean a quick fix? Uh, as far as growing trophy whitetails, they could they started they started realizing that you could take a take a you know that's the the pen industry or the the raising farming uh, wildlife really started up in the I guess about the nineties, which is it took from the first events in the sixties. There was almost nobody doing it for that you know almost thirty years. And it was that was that first place a private facility or was it like a hunt like a like a outfit it, outfitting establishment? It was, it was a private research. It was it was a private it was a private property and the university did it as a research project to start. And uh, found out that it worked, and that's when they started publishing their oh, research, and that's kind of just ex- escalated from there. And uh, so, uh, so basically, people just started they started fencing in smaller and smaller properties, and all of a sudden, the pen developed, kind of almost accidentally, just fencing off small pieces of property and seeing what they could they could concentrate growing these you know Frankenstein type deer, and that's what it's evolved in, and that's what people see on TV on the on the pin stuff with all these freakishly big deer that are they can barely hold up their head. Mm-hmm. Um but in my opinion I don't I mean that's that's kind of where it started and where it, we are now and it puts a bad taste in people's mouth for for the fences. Um so it is opinion, not is not having a fence like you worked at two places that are not fenced. Are they not fenced for aesthetic reasons, or are they not fenced for long term? They're they're not fenced. Well, the the other one is it, it is it is uh, I guess you could say uh, it's not completely fenced. It is partially fenced on one side, but that's uh, that one was we we got along with with our neighbors, and they practiced the same management plans that we or management practices that we did. Uh, this place. Is uh, the owners of this property are super anti uh, pen deer, super anti high fence. Um, they like Boone and Crockett Club, and they they really want to be able to enter deer that we harvest here in the in the Boone and Crockett system, which, which means natural reproduction, which natural reproduction, no human contact, no direct human contact, uh, and that's that's pretty much uh that's that's the whole reason in maverick county i forgot what what magazine did the did the the deal but they rated the top 50 counties in the nation for uh 
for whitetail entry since 2004. I can't remember if it was, it was one of the, you know, more common long-term magazines, but, uh, it was, they rated the top 50 counties in the nation for, for Boone and Crockett whitetail entries since 2004. Maverick County was number one, typical, and number two, non-typical entries. Uh, and I believe that was, it, it was the only, it was the only Texas County in the top 10. Uh, it might've been the only Texas, it, it might, I think it might've been the only Texas County in the top 50. Uh, but we were, that's why, that's why they chose to buy a piece of property in Maverick County. And, uh, and they came to me and they said, can we grow big deer without a fence? And I said, absolutely. All you have to do is let them grow. And, uh, but you have to get a property big enough where your neighbors aren't going to be shooting every single one. So if you're on a smaller, smaller property, the deer can, during the rut, the deer are going to go across the fence. And and anybody in their right mind, deer that looks old, mature, and has a big rack, they're going to blast it. And uh, but that yeah, they're not going to care if it's like that. You know, if you let it go two more years, they're not probably not going to see it anyway. Right, right. They're not. They don't. Yeah, they're there for that weekend or that day to hunt and they see a big deer and they're going to shoot it. It's, it's a completely different dynamic than, than most, most, uh, what most people consider hunting. It's, uh, we're not, we're not farming it, farming them, but we're watching them grow, I guess. Um, it's similar to some guys that have, uh, good mule deer in elk country out West that name their bulls to, so that way they can keep up with locating them the following year. Yeah. Um, you know, just you know, on public ground, even it's real similar to that. We're just doing it in the private sector. So how many, how many bucks are you keeping uh, an eye on? Um, I think I have on my inventory list right now, I might have three or 400, I guess. Do you have photo documentation of how much time do you spend besides the trail cameras? How much time do you spend out? What observing and photographing deer just to get to know who's all out there? Uh, let's see, October October first through February fifteenth. Um, I'm in the in the field uh, at least six days a week, most of the time seven days a week for you know morning and evening, two two or three hours in the morning, two three hours in the evening, almost every day. In a stand uh, observing deer. In a stand observing deer with the with the camera. I use a big lens uh, out of the stand to uh, supplement the trail cameras. Um, and I'm running about 35 to 40 trail cameras from August 15th to February or March, and uh, 40,000 pictures roughly a week. And uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's my Monday Tuesday. So, and that's just to try to get to know who's here. Yep, I'm just getting to know. Them. That's all I'm doing. And within that, how often do you, how often does a deer pop up? It depends on his personality. How often does a deer pop up that you had no idea was here, even though you're doing all that time looking? Like um, how much mystery is left? The, around the, the perimeters, when we get influx from the neighbors during December, during the rut, there is, uh, I'll run into a new deer probably, you know, whenever I say new deer, Everything that I'm noticing is usually three years old and older because I can't, it's hard to distinguish the ones, twos, and three-year-olds year to year. But yeah. once, they, once they hit three and four, they're easier to distinguish year to year. And you're not distinguishing them off the antlers. Well, it's helpful. 
but Correct. there's other things. Tell me, like, because you explained to me some of the things you're actually looking for. Yeah. yeah which allow you to tell it one deer from the other. Yeah. So, so what explain I, the posture of the photographs, too, because that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so, so my, my field photos with my camera from the stand, uh, I try to get the, I try to get the bucks, uh, broadside looking, looking in my direction with their ears perked and their hawks offset. And I do that because, uh, you can tell age based off the hawks. You can't tell an exact age, but it helps you, uh, narrow down the age. And then the broadside, of course, lets you look at all the different traits, such as the, the, the chest, the brisket, you know, the, the, uh, the uh, swaying belly or flat belly or flat back or swaying back. Um, but what I which do, is age, right? which is all for age purposes only, but usually if I've been watching them, I'm not worried about aging them on those pictures. I'm worried about an identifier, what I call an identifier. And uh, what I, what I consider an identifier is something like a uh, split ear, like a, you know, I'm talking like a quarter inch Nick on the tip of the right ear or, you know, on the bottom side of the ear, there's, you know, a quarter of the way up, there's a, there's a black spot and they'll carry these characteristics year to year and, uh, or a dark forehead or a, or a double throat patch, double white throat patch or a bobtail, um, or any kind of distinguishing scar or, uh, you know, there's a, there's a ton of them when you start when you start really studying and looking, there's there's a ton of different characteristics that you can look at that are not associated with antlers. Because yeah. antlers change so much. You never know. You can usually recognize them year to year once they get older. But uh, but the the ear splits and the tails and stuff like that, that little stuff that you can pick up on. And uh, and I can't remember it all. That's why we're documenting it with uh, – we we document it with the – or the uh, – infield photos from the stand and that's why I, I try to get them in that that posture that position to uh that way i may not know that deer this year because i didn't notice something but i take a picture of a deer in that same area next year that looks kind of similar and i put the two two together then the third year i take another picture of that same deer in that same deal so then i i create a catalog of inventory of deer from year to year and it helps me understand their age better and uh, and I can let them. We can therefore decide if we want to harvest them or not. And uh, and it and some people. And that's think, you're making that decision. I'm making that decision. Yeah. And uh, some people think that's you know that's a little bit uh, too far into it, I guess, or, or thinking too much about it, and it's taking some of the hunting part away. But uh, my bosses don't know that I know that deer, or they know I know that deer, but they don't know that deer. They haven't. Ne- they've never seen it before, uh, so it's still hunting to the right people. Um, and uh, but <laughs> there's several several of these bucks that I'm getting pictures of. I'll I'll have thirty to thirty five hunts looking for them and never see them. Meaning, you'll you'll identify a buck and you'll be like, if you're going to get him, this is the year to do it. Right. He's not going uphill from here. Right. And then, no, and he never turns up. Right, right. Well, even to the point where what I what I'm what I meant by that was, uh, where my statement was, uh, if I have a deer on trail camera, because trail cameras just they just give me something to go look at more than anything. 
you can tell a lot, but you can't tell everything. So what I'll do is I'll use the trail cameras to find a uh, find a, a, a deer of interest. You know, say he's a 150 a type. D, a DOI. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I'll, I'll find a 150 class, whatever, something or other that I've, I don't know. I'll go sit on that deer with my big lens to find an identifier. You know, to find a split ear. Because you can't always notice those little uh, spot on the ear, uh, uh, different characteristic on the body. You can't always notice those in uh, trail cams the first time you see one. So you have to see them in person. And then I get a, what I'll do is I'll get them, get a picture of them broadside, print it out in an eight by 10, put it in a folder. And then next year, uh, do the same thing. And then I can put those pictures right next to each other and see who's who. Uh, but, but usually when we do green light, a buck, a trophy, trophy buck to shoot, we shot one two years ago that was, uh, I think it took him. 30 or 35 sits before he killed him. We had because one, what? What was happening? It's nocturnal. It's nocturnal and will not show up in the daylight, even with all the feed in the world that you want to put out. They get, uh, we are, we, we practice, uh, we, we do a lot of uh, selective harvest for population control. And what we're trying to do is, is we reduce the stress by reducing the population and, and uh, creating more feed, but that in Yeah, turn- you know, that's one of the things I want to ask you about. Let me back up a minute. Okay. I want to ask you about another thing. You guys are like a couple bad dates. You have any, <laughs> like nothing. It's, it's it, all coming out. Nothing, it, your, your little brain, nothing is going like, <laughs> oh, I wish I knew a little more about that. It's all coming out. You're asking the good questions, man. Really? So like you'll have something on the tip of your tongue and then I'll say it. Yep. Yep. Well, or I'll, or you just keep talking and then I'll think about something else and then. It just keeps going. <laughs> <laughs> more, it keeps drifting away. All right. I'm starting to think that something's wrong with you guys. No, man. I'm just fascinated. Learning about whitetail. Um, okay. I'm going to jump you around a little bit. Now I can't remember. I interrupted you before you got into something I wanted to ask you about. What were you just going to get into? I don't know. I'm not the one paying attention. About man. bringing the population down. <laughs> oh, yeah. About the importance of not having too many deer. Right. But as a kid, and Yanni can back me up on this. As a kid growing up in whitetail country in Michigan, and I was like our big game animal, our only big game animal was whitetails. It was like you aged deer, at least in your head. You aged deer by what their antlers looked like. So everyone knew that a spiker fork was a year and a half old. If he was a Michigan six or a Michigan eight or so, or Western three. Let's just make a deal. You guys use Eastern count? Yeah. Five on one side, five on the other side. He's a 10 point. Right. Count the brow tines. Right. Okay. We started calling them Michigan sixes because everybody in the damn country has a different way of counting them. We're right, only right. speaking Eastern. <laughs> so a six or an eight was two. Yeah. Right. And that was like just accepted wisdom. The other piece of accepted wisdom was a, a spike wasn't going to become big. Because he's already small. Yeah. Now, speak to that stuff. The, uh, like, what, what can you actually tell with age by looking at the antlers on a deer? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. Because, I mean, I've seen, I've seen uh, antlers are, I guess, in, in a way, they're, they're uh, 
an indication of age. If you look at the, if you look at mass, mass and uh, and uh, just, but as far as number of points and spread, none of that seems to matter on age. It's yeah, because you were just showing me an eight point that was a year and a half old. Yeah, yeah, we had we had an eleven point this year that was a year and a half old. Uh, I had a, I had a uh, uh, six pointer with a drop time that was a year and a half old this year. So his first rack, first rack, he had a drop time. Yep. And then we have we have you know seven and eight year old deer that have eight points barely. Do you ever get? Do you ever get a deer older than than one, who's a forky? Yeah, yeah. I shot one. Uh, I shot one a few years ago that was a uh, he was a two by two four point, uh, and uh, he was I think he was five and a half by his tooth wear. Which he could have been older, uh, so he just never. It just all right. Yeah, I've killed. But he was a heavy two point. Oh, he was a big two point. <laughs> oh, he was. <laughs> yeah, oh, so yeah. you looked at him and knew he wasn't. Like, oh yeah, he was. He was. Uh, he was probably eighteen inches wide inside with uh, with like eight or nine inch G twos. But that's all he had. Yeah, he had nothing else. He was just two big forks. Like it looked like a mule mule deer. Yeah. Now I'm gonna do something else. I'm gonna distract you in another way. Just throw this out. Just. I just want to throw this out. Tell me the number of wild pigs that you have handled in by trapping and whatnot. How many wild pigs have you handled here in South Texas? Forty-seven ninety-five as of this morning. Four thousand seven hundred ninety-five wild pigs have passed through your hands since I started counting. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me how how old were you when you welded up your first pig trap? Fourteen. All right, so. Deer. Um, <laughs> that's just a little teaser for later. That's a little teaser. So deer now, you're saying, and you told, you told me about this too, that too many, like if you have too many deer running around, they're not going to get as big. It, uh, okay. Get into that a little bit. Okay. It, it all, uh, yeah, the, the, it's all boils down to population dynamics as far as, uh, you know, Mother Nature's way is 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 grow, 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 and then have a big die off, and then grow, 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 and once it once it uh, surpasses carrying capacity, once the land surpasses the carrying capacity, uh, it has a die off, and it, it's uh, so basically you have these big spikes on the graph, up and down, up and don't down. some species just hit carrying capacity and then level off? Um, I'm sure they do. The ones that I'm studying don't, or that I'm dealing with, um, quail and deer. For instance, um, they hit carrying capacity and they keep reproducing, and then all of a sudden there's you know too many, less and less food, more competition, and they start getting the first. Yeah, the thing, species people look at when they're kind of talking about that that phenomenon is people like to look at snowshoe hares. Yeah, yeah, it's where exactly. it's so cyclical that it falls in the line. What is it, seven years? Yeah, I mean it's like dialed in, right? And then you look at they they did a study where they looked at snowshoe hair patterns, and they went back through all the Hudson Bay Company records on lynx. How many hides lynx hides were getting handled, and it was offset. But lynx, who their primary prey species is snowshoe rabbits, they looked at Hudson Bay Company lynx hide receipts and realized that lynx hide lynx seemed to bounce along in a seven-year span offset from the snowshoe hair seven-year span. Right, yeah. 
like just respond to that it direct response. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, and see, whitetails, whitetails do it. It's more gradual, and now that now that people there's there's such a, a high profile animal and, and game animal that people are never going to let them die off, but they will let them overpopulate. And the first thing, the first thing that they, but they won't ever let them reach that that uh, point where they just they start dying off. But what happens is is is, is people get greedy and they they want to let as many survive as possible thinking that even big buck guys even the big as many as possible thinking that someone's going to turn up who's real big right with all these damn deer they they think they think that giant deer are an anomaly anomaly and uh and and they're not they're they're a low percentage they're not they i mean they're there's there's a certain percentage of of whitetails that are going to be big and it's a, it's just a, a straight up bell curve, and the in the middle range down here is about 130 inches, and uh, so so uh, what we do or what I do to lower the population, we 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 cull animals to lower the population to uh, reduce stress. And whitetails, in my opinion, are completely stress oriented. Rather, it's food, water, bedding cover. Everything is stress related. So if you have too many, it may not look like the habitat is suffering, but they're competing directly with food. And uh, same thing with bedding cover. And uh, so the first thing to go on a whitetail is when, it, when it's trying to survive is antler growth. It's a luxury. It's, yeah, pure, pure luxury. And uh, so what, uh, and we, we do feed here. So that's, that's uh, we're trying, certain people in Texas feed to offset they think they can offset that uh stress level of competition in uh in natural habitat we feed as a supplement to help them out through drought conditions so you don't have those spikes in the in the in the graph like we were talking about we try to level it out as much as we can to because that reduces the stress uh anything any of the the uh i guess the the spike up or the spike down are all creating stress on the on individual animals. Yeah. So culling is the practice of going out and uh killing deer. Yeah. Both to reduce numbers and to make some kind of selection about who's gonna be on the property and who's not, right? Correct. Correct. And just to explain this. Because Texas runs wildlife so differently than some other places in the U.S., uh, the state will come out to a big chunk of ground in Texas and make an assessment about how many deer you guys are supposed to kill. Because the state's trying to encourage you to not let them get overrun. The state is one hundred percent worried about habitat. They don't want they want the habitat to be healthy. They don't care about, or they do. They do care about uh, the animals, but they're they realize that if you have great habitat, you're going to have healthy animals. Okay. And that's their number one focus. So their number one focus is that you're not going to allow your habitat to become degraded, to have long-term degradation in the name of short-term bunch of deer running around. Right, right. Or cattle. Or cattle, yeah. But in those but in those are on private land. See, this it's mostly private land, and that's all uh, uh, the, uh, the state those are recommendations by the state. The state's not forcing you. 
Yeah. You know, uh, and, uh, but the people that are, want to be good land stewards and want to grow better deer and have better long-term wildlife programs and cattle grazing programs request the state's assistance to come out and tell them what they should or shouldn't do. And they'll come out and say, like just using, it doesn't have to be specific to this place, but they'll come out to a property like this and they'll come out and say, you boys would be wise to kill 400 deer this year. Here are your tags. Here are your certificates for those 400 deer. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, they, they base that on several different, uh, they do browse surveys. So they look at the, whatever the deer are eating. And if, if the plant, if the plants look stressed out, then they'll, then they'll, uh, I guess, uh, give you more, more tags or less tags versus based off of what they notice on the plants. Um, they do surveys, population surveys to see what that particular piece of ground is, is, uh, capable of, of handling. And the best way to count deer here is helicopter, right? Helicopter here. You can use spotlights too, but it's too thick here. So we use, uh, predominantly what I do is I, I try to use a, a helicopter survey in tandem with the cameras and i try to get an individual buck count on the cameras and then uh get your buck doe ratio from the helicopter and your fawn survival from your helicopter yeah so you take your individual buck count from the from the camera and uh apply that to the buck doe ratio and then you can get your number of does and then you apply your fawn crop to that and get your total number of deer and when they come out and give you is 300 like a decent number for a big chunk of land? 300, 400? Probably. Are you raising your hand? I am. Holy cow, Yanni. You, Giannis woke up. Giannis woke up and has a thought. I have a question too after oh. Yanni. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> See, I want to interrupt, man, with like a dumb question. You guys got such good questions. I don't want to be like, hey, what's this, man? You know what? Chris is being so polite right now. I'll tell you what the deal is. There's so much talking that goes on that it's hard to even slip in a conversation. No, it's not. Sometimes. No, it's not. <laughs> I'll break in right now. Okay, you start talking. <laughs> say, say something. Yeah, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> uh, so here's what I'm wondering. It's just, like, it's just like as simple as that. Tell me about how, when you do a helicopter survey, kind of just like give me the breakdown of how that happens, like the main steps. Like skip the, you know, before I got in, I took a pee. But once you get in there, <laughs> you take off, deer start flushing. And what are you actually looking for and what are you recording and writing down? Well, the, the way I do it, sir, everybody does it different. But the way I do it uh, is you, what, you, what you do is you, you – you separate the property into like a grid or transects, line transects. And those could be, depending on visibility, if the vegetation is high or the vegetation is low, that depends on, that makes, uh, decides what your transects are going to be. You know, whether they're going to be a hundred yards apart where you're running down, you know, running down, turning around, coming back, running down, turning back, uh, or if they're going to be 400 yards apart. And based off of the, the density of the brush or the density of vegetation and what you can see, that's how you estimate how much, uh, how much of the property you can cover with the helicopter or how much you're surveying. Say it's so in this 80%. Sort of, in this sort of thick-ass country, what is a transect? It's usually about 200 yards. Because right. you can see at 200 yards, you can usually see 100 yards out both sides. So you'll move over. Uh, and how many, how many feet high are you flying? Uh, I don't It's It varies depending on the vegetation. But it's not, it's not, I guess it'd be probably 50, 50 or 50. Oh, you're just skimming. It's nothing, oh, like, it's, air, it's, nothing like an airplane. No, the skids are touching the tops of the trees sometimes. I oh, mean, it's, man. it's pretty low. 
And uh, depending on the wind, too, if it's real windy, we'll get higher just so we don't crash. But, <laughs> uh, but so what we'll do is we'll, try, we'll fly these transects, and I guess they'd be 400-yard transects if you can see 100 yards either way uh, is what it would boil down to. And uh, so what you're looking for is when a deer flushes, you usually can't see them if they stand still. But So you usually want to get them to flush. So you don't want to fly on a windy day or a hot day where they're going to be bedded or not hear you. You want to fly on a calm, cool day, usually cloudy work, so that way they're moving as soon as they hear you. And what we'll do is we'll count uh, bucks, does, and fawns is pretty much what you're counting. And you can tell the difference between the does and the fawns pretty well. We usually fly in October, so the fawns are pretty pretty small. And then the bucks break into subcategories. And I break them into young bucks, middle-aged bucks, and old bucks. And then, uh, and like I said, I, I, that gives you your sex ratio and your ratio of young versus middle-aged versus old bucks. And then it also gives you your fawn survival for that summer. And you take those ratios and apply them to your individual buck count from your cameras. And, uh, I'm tracking, kind of. <laughs> and through all that, the state will take those numbers and say, and they accept you know, your numbers. They well, they accept mine. They don't accept everybody. Sometimes you, they have to have a, a you know a state uh, employee in the helicopter with you. Okay, but if you're um, trained in it, you can get to a point where they'll accept your numbers. Yeah, if yeah. you're trained in it and and they trust you and they know you're you're not going to screw up, then they'll take your numbers. And I've been doing it for ten or twelve or almost fourteen years, I guess now. But what's your level of accuracy? Like, do you plus and minus, like... No, you're not... Rare? Well, see, with the with the helicopter ratios, you're not uh, you're not trying to get a number. You're just trying to get the ratio. Oh, right, okay. So, uh, so with the, and then with the individual buck counts, so say you have, you know, one-to-one ratio, and you can see 300 bucks on the, on the trail camera, so you have 300 does on a one-to-one ratio. So you have 600 deer, but then you have a 50% fawn survival, and what 50% fawn survival means, you have 300 does, you have 150 fawns. That's 50%. So in that situation, you have 750 total deer on the property. And uh, and you, you can't really... A lot of people do the helicopter survey, you know, and that's how many deer they think they have. But what you just mentioned, your level of accuracy is changes from property to property, depending on who's flying, depending on weather. It's There's too many variables to... Yeah. But that, it gives you a good idea and better than nothing. Exactly. Exactly. What was your other question? Because that, that question was prompted by something that was spoken after you expressed interest in asking the question. No, no, no that was it. That <laughs> no. Was it. No, it was. Yeah, yeah. Honestly? Yeah, yeah. yeah all right. Um, you all up, up to speed? Okay. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in 
ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Hey, everybody. I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. Now, they give you these tags. There's a penalty if you go over. There's no penalty for going under. They frown upon going under. They do. Yeah. So when they come out and say, son, we're thinking that you need to do some deer shooting out here. They're not happy if you just don't do any deer shooting. No. I mean, they if you're if – you're, if you go through the process of getting the permits, and it's a long process, oh, so you can, so you could just well never bring any of this up and never get any permits and and do whatever you wanted to the to what your your license allows, which is which is your over the counter when over you buy counter. a deer tag, right? And the way people get around that is they just bring in more guests, you know, more guests to shoot deer, so then they can overshoot deer that way. So this is a thing you kind of. A, a thing you enroll in and in, in, right. in a plan you enroll in. Yeah, it's a, it's a long-term, several-year system just to get started in the program. And when they give you the tags, it doesn't matter who's pulling the trigger. 
uh, okay, there's three levels of these permits, uh, and I believe the first level. Uh, it, uh, I don't. I don't remember. I haven't been in the first and second level in in ten years, so I don't remember. But uh, and and Scott would know if we get him on here later. But uh, the level three, anybody can shoot as many deer. So if you get a hundred tags, one person could shoot one hundred deer legally, and they could they could use all the tags. Or you could have a hundred different people shoot one deer. Uh, it makes no difference. And uh, on the le- on the highest level. So someone hunting on that property needs to have a hunting license. They have to have a hunting license, yes. And there's a stack of tags. Yeah. And when a deer is killed on that property, one of those tags goes on to that deer. One of the state-issued permits goes on that deer. One of your license, your tag off of your over-the-counter license does not go on that deer if your property is enrolled in that permit system. So when you go buy a tag and it comes with five deer tags, but you're only hunting on your property and you have state-issued tags on your property, you never touch your tags. Correct. I have not used a, a whitetail tag off of my license in six or seven years. Because you're just doing... I'm only hunting here. Or on, or on properties that uh, that have the same permitting system. Same permitting system. Okay. Now, earlier you were talking about that a buck... You're telling me that when a doe has twin fawns, 80% of the time, those twin fawns have different fathers. The last study that I read uh, was, was uh, in, in this southwest Texas. Was, this, uh, this information is somewhat specific to this area. Yeah, every, it, that's what that, yeah. It's, it's everything site-specific with whitetails. They change so much from area to area. And... Uh, but yeah, they because we have such tight sex ratios, one to one most of the time, or even even higher bucks than does. Yeah, and, and I'll so, point out that they're born one to one. Yeah, right, right. A little yeah. heavier on the bucks. Like a little heavier, heavier on the bucks. Yeah. So when you're sitting like when when I was growing up, you'd be sitting in there in the woods, and you'd see about ninety does for every buck you saw. Right. Or in in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. Because that was like. I moved away from Michigan, but I was born. You know, I'm 42 years old, so I started hunting when I was you know 11, 12 years old. And back then, people didn't want to shoot does. Everybody shot every buck they saw, right? And you'd sit up there and be like, I remember sitting there one time in a cornfield, and I remember it was like a late season hunt, so rifle season ended. I was hunting the December season with my bow, and I remember counting 90-some white-tailed does without a buck. Holy cow. Yeah. I wonder if that was uh, was that, uh, I wonder if that was a good indication of the sex ratio, or was it a, a, a indication of hunting pressure for the buck? I don't know, but my feeling was growing up, and it was a long time ago, and I didn't have a, I wasn't taking a scientific approach to it. My feeling was back then in those days that the that the ratios were as ridiculous. They they got to be as ridiculous as like you'd hear thrown around. You'd have twenty does for every buck. Yeah, I, there's there's places in Texas like that that are neglected or not uh, uh, not neglected, but not not managed, and uh, only they only shoot the bucks. Same same deal like you're talking about that that happened right now today. But yeah, so it's interesting in that they're born one to one. But of course, one thing that skews it is I'm sure the does got have a much longer life expectancy. Yeah, is that true? Um, in in unmanaged places, I would believe so. Yes, in managed places, I don't I I don't think so. Is that right? Yeah. So let's just say all people died right now. Okay, humans cease to exist. 
and we jump into the future 100 years, based on your understanding of whitetails, would whitetails exist then at a one-to-one ratio? And it just, I guess it depends on their location, but I kind of, I would believe yes. You believe they'd find a way toward that? Mm -hmm. I I believe, especially in this area, they gravitate to to one-to-one. Okay. So, the twin fawn thing. Did a doe is is uh getting bred by a bunch of different bucks. Yeah. I watched a doe on a with a with a rep train one time I had seven bucks. Seven bucks with one doe that was hot and she they she was in a field. I watched six of those bucks breed her. A couple of them multiple times. Weren't you telling me all but the big one? The only one that never bred her was the big one. While you watched. Yeah. While I, well yeah, while I was because he was so paranoid about trying to beat all the other ones off. He chased one 100 yards the other way, and another one would run in and breed her, mount her, breed her, and then he'd turn around and see that one breeding her, turn around and chase him off, and then another one would come in from the other side. There was, there was a couple of those bucks that bred her multiple times, and he never bred her. What's and, the uh, time frame that that's even like biologically possible to be bred by two different bucks? Is it like same day? or? Yeah, I think their estrus is, is uh, 24 to 48 or something like that. Uh, so she... she- forms two embryos and just because she's in there <clears throat> being so trashy that winds up carrying in her the children of two different bucks right it works with dogs if you breed uh if you breed three male dogs to the same female they can have you know puppies from all three sires mixed litters yeah is it like here's another another thing we used to say when we were kids: the a buck bred a big buck. Once he got to be the big man, like the biggest buck around, he'd breed ten to twenty does. That's possible. It doesn't happen. On what I notice here with a one to one ratio, I think every buck is pretty well equal from my from my observations. Yearling bucks in this area. In this area of Texas, in this, I mean, this is a small, minute little spot, but uh, in my observations, yearling bucks breed as much as older bucks. All age classes are pretty well consistent. Huh. Depending on the individual. Depending on the individual. You get, it's just like people. You get the real horny ones, and you get the ones that are just laid back, and all they do is want to eat. Yeah. It's the same deal with deer. And, uh, I mean, some bucks may not breed any any dose their whole life or one or two just that just happen to stop and squat in front of them what's uh, that valerius guy's theory i think we were talking to you the about founder effect huh i was gonna bring up the founder effect earlier is that the one where the buck takes himself out of the breeding uh process oh was that val geist i think so i, I never really believed that theory yeah is that something he put forward i gotta google it do it because i'll tell you another val geist thing I think it was Valerius Geis who there's a there's a very famous uh, mammologist in Calgary at the university there. He's still living. I've never met him. Named Valerius Geist, and, and he has he's like a big ideas guy about animals. And and he wrote about. And I, they might even have come up coined the term the founder effect, basically about the um, when animals come into a new area when they discover new range or having a range expansion from something like retreating glaciers at the end of the ice age or whatever, the, um, the tendency toward gigantism 
that happens with animals moving into a new piece of habitat. And we see it with introductions, wildlife introductions, explosions, right? Giant specimens, a whole bunch of them. And then you have like a collapse and then you kind of find a norm. But that was a Val Geist thing. Yeah, he's going to dig it up. Yeah, I heard this theory like that bucks, it just, yeah, I don't even need to look the damn thing up. It was this idea that I think you were talking about, Giannis, that a buck will be like, hey, man, I got an idea. I'm going to pull myself out of the genetic pool and go off and hide out for several years and get real big and bad. And then I'm going to come down and pour the coals to every dough I can find. <laughs> I'm going to come out of like hiding like I'm in a Hollywood movie. And pour the coals to every dough that I could find. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you'd ever seen that. If you'd seen bucks that for like four or five years had been just real mellow, weren't very aggressive, and because of that, you know, had put on weight and gotten big, and then all of a sudden one year they just turned it on and kind of started kicking butt. It's like a version of the old like, hey, let's run down and breed one of those cows. And the old one's like, let's walk down and breed them all. It's kind of like an extreme version of that. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't I haven't noticed that here. Um, <laughs> it, it seems you haven't noticed a bu- a big buck hiding somewhere <laughs> for many years and then all of a sudden coming out and just it, it seems, pillaging the women. <laughs> I'll say what I've noticed is when they're horny at one, they're horny their whole life. Mm. When all they want to do is eat and they don't really look at the girls, they're like that their whole life. You know, as far as fight, like folks. fighting and breaking tines, there's bucks that never break even a tip for eight or nine years of their life. Then there's other bucks that are have every tine on their head broken by November. He's just gonna fight. He's just that's I knew guys like that. Yeah, exactly. It's it, they're just like people, and they're so individual that that's what makes it fun, and that's what makes it hard, and that's what also makes it so so interesting to me because nobody's ever right and nobody's ever wrong yeah your 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 theories and everything that you do you know it it has an application somewhere so you're not uh you're not shooting all the giant bucks no you don't shoot the 200 inch bucks no and i know you get paid to do it you could probably get paid to do all kinds of stuff what do you get out of it uh it's i mean it's it's a passion it's just something that i've developed over the years and now it's more of an addiction it started out as a passion and now it's more of an addiction i couldn't turn my back to it now if i wanted to and uh just watching just just a, 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 watching a, a we talked about this word earlier watching like a system yeah just just a wildlife system right just learning as much as i possibly can about you know that animal how much do you feel that you're manipulating it to the point where you're your farming deer and how much do you feel you're just making room for things you're making room to allow things that would happen happen i feel i feel very strongly that as far as i i feel like we're trying to let things occur that would naturally occur and maybe putting them on a fast track without with an indirect approach um, meaning in real like again in this scenario this hypothetic scenario where, where all humans die you would all humans are dead you would see that some deer were growing to nine years old and dying of old age 
which is not happening in Muskegon County, Michigan, where I grew up, even kind of. Is there hunting? <laughs> yeah. So if there wasn't people. Yeah. No, there is yeah. no old buck. Right. We about shit our pants one year. My dad shot a buck. That looking back, it must have been a two and a half year old buck. <laughs> it was a giant. Yeah. Yeah. He even got it in the newspaper. <laughs> it was a 120 inch buck. Yeah. No, I, uh, man, I don't know that. They all revert back. It's it goes back to those spikes in the in the populations. What I'm trying to do is avoid the spikes. If 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 people disappeared in a hundred years from now, it would be the it would be the up and down population. Wildly cyclical. Yes. And uh there would be years or points in that process or that system of, of ups and downs that would be mirror to what we're trying to do here. But it wouldn't be consistent. You know what I, it, yeah, you know, know what I'm it, saying? You know, it'd be up and down, but while it was going up, it would be what we're trying to hit Yeah, here. Um, and that's all we're trying to do is we're just trying to slow that down. Yep. How will you, like, right now, if, if you had to sit right now and say, in my career, um, I would measure success by what? What would it be? Not only I mean say your career, because you're you're young. Like in, in what would be the ideal thing that you would see happen on a property you were managing? Like a, what would be the ten year goal? Uh, huh. uh, well, like a ten year. I don't know. I don't know if I could fathom what I really want to happen. Uh, but you don't know what it would look like. No, it, it, there's that's that's I don't have any idea what it would look because like. Because see, the situation you're in. I remember earlier you were mentioning that, um, and you weren't putting this as a life goal, but you were just saying like a thing that would happen perhaps is that every year you'd get it to be where you had a a, a handful, two, three, four, truly like outstanding whitetails, right, come off your property. But one would point out you could do that right now, right, by going online. And buying like, you know, big thunderfox semen. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. And, and putting them in a pen and giving them a bunch of stuff. Right. So it's like you want to get there, but you want to get there in a, in a route that is acceptable to you or a route that's right. interesting to you and not through a route that's not interesting to you. Correct. Be like, I want to have a million dollars. I can make it crooked. I'm not saying me, but right. so it could be like, I want a million dollars. I want to make it through running like a great company that treats its employees really well. And has like stable growth patterns and, and, and a good environmental record. Or I want to make a million dollars and I don't care if I have to kill you to do it. Right. That's exactly, I mean, exactly, exactly right. My, my problem is, is as far as seeing into the future, my goals would be, yeah, to have a couple of gigantic whitetail bucks at a harvestable age each year. Uh, however, nobody's doing what we're trying to do here or has done what we're trying to do here to the intensity that we're doing it. So you can't really predict what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, that's not like that's if you what, follow this recipe X will. Right. Nobody yet. And, and it's so different, you know, from site to site. And that's why, that's why that question is difficult for me to answer. Yeah. Um, cause I don't really know something might happen that we don't see because this is never you know, nobody's, nobody's done this. It's not like, you know, like you said, you follow a recipe and this is what you're going to end up with. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Mother nature has a awesome way of saying, screw you, you know, and throwing a wrench into things when you try to start messing with her. 
Yeah. And, uh, and that's another fun part for me. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, like an unintended consequences when we were talking about quail and you were saying you can think you're helping out quail yeah. by putting out quail feeders. But what you might be doing is helping out bobcats and coyotes by giving them a great place to kill quail. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. Like intuitively be like, oh yeah, put some food out, dude. You have tons of quail. Yeah. That's how, that's how there's a lot of things that got screwed up in, in the U S that are started out as good intentions and the byproducts were, you know, completely disastrous. Yanni. Speaking of unintended consequences, you know, that's what's cool about this place is that it's all, you guys are trying to do all like native flora. And like, while we, you know, you come down here and you've got the whole high fence thing in your head and you're thinking about exotics and there's going to be zebras running around and this, that, and the other. And like, let's like list off the cool stuff that we've seen this week. The four species of snakes. Yeah. A horny toad. Uh, What is Texas tortoise. Texas Texas tortoise. tortoise. A grinner. Grinner. About 300 (laughs) jackrabbits. 500 cottontail rabbits. Unbelievable. Uh, Mexican whist, black belly whistling ducks, unbelievable varieties of birds. Yeah. I haven't seen this one kudu roll through yet. <laughs> yeah. My, that, that's kind of why I want to have this discussion is because my impress, like the first time I ever came down here to like the famous Texas whitetail country was when I came down with Ben O'Brien to come down here and just look at quail. And I remember walking around being like, this is just not what I imagined. You know, it is uh, hu- it is vast expanses of, I don't want to say pristine, the hand of man is felt. Like we, for instance, talked about the implications of fire suppression. Right. 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 The, we, we, you and I were having, Ben and I, Ben, ben in here, we're, we were discussing like, wow, you, what would you have paid to rode a horse through here 200 years ago? And he feels that it would have been more mixed grasslands yeah. from, from, making mosaics of burned areas and unburned areas. And, and the animal, the wildlife is a little different. Uh, buffalo or bison ranged down in this area, which suggests more open country. Antelope are found down here, which suggests more open country. So there's the hand of man is felt. Right. You know, through that same way, interrupting systems, fire systems and things. However, vast expanses of what by a relative standard of what goes on in the U.S. would be undisturbed environment privately owned but vast expanses of undisturbed landscape wildlife habitat yeah and a a, a pretty stunning array of 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 native wildlife you know yeah it's some tremendous wildlife viewing yeah here and unusual things we saw a snake i had never heard of the blue what's it called blue indigo the blue indigo. Yeah. Saw a souped up friggin' rattlesnake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been interesting. 
Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.